Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, live and worldwide from Washington, D.C. I I can no longer say from my studio in Washington, D.C., because the studio now is the kitchen table at my home as we all continue to be somewhat hunkered down after the pandemic, slowly digging our way out. The Big Time Talker podcast is a service of SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you are a meeting planner or you're a speaker, by all means, visit SpeakerMatch.com and figure out how to do it virtually. The Big Time Talker podcast welcomes to our microphones today Mark Thornton. Mark is an author, former congressional candidate, economist at the Mises Institute in Alabama, research fellow with the Independent Institute. But we don't want to let all that scare you because Mark is also a guy that can give us some plain talk on what to expect with the economy. Mark, welcome to the podcast. And let's start here. What what happens when 40 million Americans are suddenly thrown out of work? Oh, Burke, it's great to be on the program, but uh, those numbers are very dreadful, uh, catastrophic, really, Uh, certainly for small business, family uh, businesses. uh, You know, the lockdown... Uh, you know, didn't affect big corporations by and large. It, it helped Amazon. It didn't hurt Walmart. Uh, so the big corporations seem to get through this and, and weren't penalized by the federal government and state government shutdowns. But family-owned independent businesses were crushed um, and are really reeling, uh, trying to reestablish themselves, trying to keep their businesses open. And of course, all that money uh, was gobbled up by larger corporations like the L.A. Lakers and, and things of that nature. Um, but small businesses, especially businesses that didn't have good banking connections, were completely shut out. So this is uh, unfair. It's tragic, um, and the worst of it may not, you know, may not even be here yet um, as we try to open up the economy. How did that happen? How is it that? You know, every news report that I saw, everything I read, everything I heard in news radio was these funds are earmarked for the little guy. So what sort of of corporate hubris does it take for the L.A. Lakers or Morton Steakhouse or give any one of a number of hundreds of these big companies to go after that money? How does that happen? How do they not immediately get shut down? Well, it's, you know, that's the way government works. They, you know, they can screw up anything. In this case, they screwed everything up. And uh, it's a big fiasco, really, uh, in Washington, D.C. They acted uh, without the knowledge. They acted in haste. Uh, They they wanted to turn this thing into a giant emergency, uh, but they could have used a much softer hand. They could have uh, not spent uh, so many trillions of dollars of the next generation's money uh, because they borrowed a huge amount of money. They printed up a huge amount of money, uh, but the bill for that, they're not going to pay. So it's just going to be fall entirely on in the laps of the next generation. Uh, I saw one estimate that if they started paying for it now, that it would increase the tax bill, uh, federal income tax bill, by $1,000 for every person in the United States forever, forever. So, I mean, the cost of this, I mean, it sounded okay. It sounded like they were doing the right thing initially, uh, but this is, they certainly didn't solve the problem initially, and they made uh, the cost of it 
uh, onto future generations. And of course, this generation as well, as I mentioned in the previous uh, question, uh, this has hurt, you know, 40 uh, million families uh, in the United States. Uh, and a lot of people, you know, it's going to throw into bankruptcy. And of course, this is the month when the moratorium on rent payments and mortgage payments uh, are going to expire. So people who have been getting by uh, because they had a little money, they had a little income, and they weren't paying their mortgage or they weren't paying their rent, uh, that moratorium is going to disappear slowly through the states throughout the month of June and July, and they're not going to be able to make those payments. They haven't been making enough money uh, to pay their other bills. So when all of this comes due, we're going to see a lot of evictions, a lot of foreclosures possibly. I uh, would like to think that banks and, and their customers and uh, landlords and their customers could have worked these things out on their own on an individual uh, basis. But uh, no, it's all going to come uh, like a waterfall um, onto the backs of the American public uh, in terms of rents and in terms of mortgage payments. This ray of sunshine, this Mr. Happy, who you're hearing from, is, is economist Mark Thornton. He's, he's uh, given it to us straight today, whether we like it or not. He's an economist, uh, author of several books on the economy, and is a research fellow with the Independent Institute. Um, Mark, I'll tell you, I have a, uh, a personal uh, story for you, and that is this. When, when it all started to hit the fan, I reached out to my bank uh, to find out about a, a PPP just-in-case uh, and I bank with one of the big banks because I, I do business all over the country. And I like the convenience of knowing I have a branch in every city I go to in America. Could not get even the courtesy of a return phone call uh, from my local branch, not even from the National Bank. Um, made a drive over, spoke to a teller uh, because the lobby was closed to customers. And the, the teller at the drive through gave her my business card and said, please have him call me. Uh, no one ever called from that bank, after repeated attempts, I went back to my hometown bank at the small town I grew up uh, in in southern West Virginia and uh, immediately got a response. Is that the same story you're hearing everywhere? Yes, that's exactly right. The big banks, the big national, international banks um, are not paying any attention to their customers. They're, they're all shut up. They can't make decisions like that. Uh, under these conditions. That's why I have uh, a, a national, international bank account in one bank and then another one with my hometown bank that's been uh, here in Auburn in existence since uh, I think it was 1909. Uh, and they made it through the panic of 1914. They made it through the Great Depression. Uh, they made it through the stagflation of the 1970s. They made it through all these crises because of better management of their money and less risk-taking. And so they've always been able to come through to me. So I would suggest, you know, do have the nationwide coverage bank account that you can always get money at. Um, and you can make, you know, they're more electronic savvy. But you also want to have a banker uh, right down the street from you that you can walk in with a handshake uh, get money. And that's that. So that's one recommendation I have for everybody in your audience. And, you know, I'm as Murray Rothbard, the great Austrian economist said, he was always pessimistic in the short run, but always optimistic in the long run. So I do have some optimism uh, that, you know, that uh, the government 
and politicians have un uncovered themselves, that the leading medical experts, CDC, has uncovered their, themselves as complete incompetence and that we won't follow the dictates of technocracy uh, going forward. And I think we've also seen instances now where state governments are saying no to the federal government. Uh, you know, the states are the ones that enacted uh, the lockdowns. They're the ones that reopened. Uh, we need that uh, experimentation in policy. We don't want a national federal blanket coverage. We want something where we're looking at other states to see their successes or failures. We're looking at other countries to see their successes and failures. Uh, that is experimentation is is great. And, you know, I see the states standing up, the people standing up to the federal government. That's what we need very badly in this country. And I think we're getting it. Uh, states and voters took the lead on cannabis relegalization. Uh, that's been a big success. It's been the states standing up to the federal government and saying no. It's the states standing up to international law and saying no. The people voting to nullify the federal law and the international law, um, it's something I'm incredibly optimistic about. And I think that the economic circumstances as it was in the early years of the Great Depression when alcohol prohibition was completely repealed. I think that's what we're going to see with uh, cannabis legislation, uh, that as the local governments, county governments, state governments, federal governments are desperate for money, they're going to turn to uh, cannabis and hemp, which has started, uh, you know, oodles of new companies, new farms, new retail, new distribution, new products, new medical products, um, and they're opening up businesses. I think there's uh, 12 dispensaries in Auburn that have opened in the last year or so that sell uh, hemp products, which don't have the THC in them, and utensils to use that to consume hemp. Um, you know, and they're, they're creating jobs for people uh, throughout the distribution chain from retail to wholesale to production um, and all the things that go with in terms of production. So, you know, those are the things that I'm optimistic about. And I think we're in the short run, we're headed for some revelations of much worse uh, economic conditions and stock market conditions. But in the long run, I think we're set up for some pretty optimistic times. Economist Mark Thornton, our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast, a service of speaker matches. We talk about uh, the long and the short game on this. Uh, look, this is this has been one hell of a 2020 so far between a global pandemic and 40 million Americans being out of work and then the, the protest and, and riots that turned bloody all over America in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Um, you're a big picture guy, a long-term thinker guy. The president initially said, uh, look, this pandemic is no big deal. And then it was, you know, we're going to bounce back uh, with so, sort of a V in the economy. It's going to dip down, then it's going to come screaming back. You study these things every day. Um, I do not. I am not sure that I can see that immediate bounce back. If you were to crystal ball it a little bit, how do you see uh, America digging itself out here? Well, that's exactly what I'm working on right now. When we get off the phone, that's what I'm working on right now because, again, the great Murray Rothbard wrote a book about America's Great Depression, and one of the things he showed was that the government's efforts on the part of Hoover and Roosevelt to help people actually prevented the economy from healing itself and getting back to normal, much as 
has been happening in Japan for a quarter of a century. Uh, and so the answer lies in the government not doing things to prevent meltdowns, uh, not doing things to prop up prices and prop up jobs and prop up wages, uh, but to let the economy find its equilibrium in terms of uh, in terms of wages, in terms of prices, uh, in terms of whose job is is really needed in the economy and who has to switch to a different job, uh, because the Fed's policy has distorted our economy uh, very badly. So the less the government does, the quicker the economy will return to equilibrium. And I'm afraid uh, that all the efforts in Washington, D.C. have been wrongheaded in that um, is that they have been trying to prop up. They, you know, they increased, for example, uh, unemployment insurance rates. And that just discourages people from getting a job because your uninsurance, um, excuse me, your unemployment insurance uh, is more money than your take-home pay. Right. So why, why go back to work when you can catch the virus, um, and and you know where you should be out there looking for some job, uh, some safe job, uh, some job that you know gives you some money. Uh, but this that new benefit is completely discouraging people. And a lot of the reasons, or some of the reasons at least, that we're having such uh, high rates of unemployment is that we've destroyed or hampered um, people's incentive to get back to work. And that's what everything we should be doing is let's get people back to work. Don't try to save jobs and prop up wages. Let's get people back to work. Let's get production up. Um, and that's the key is to get production higher, to get economic growth higher uh, and to stimulate. And this is important to stimulate entrepreneurs to take uh, work, labor that has a lower wage, uh, capital, uh, real estate, warehouses, factories, uh, office buildings, uh, those kind of things, retail um, and, and take, uh, you know, labor that's has depressed wages, uh, depressed commodity prices, and encourage entrepreneurs to uh, bring all of those resources together to make um, toothpaste um, for a profit. Um, and also we see in the past uh, that this has happened with high-tech uh, companies such as Microsoft, which was a teeny company in the 70s. And then when the depression of uh, the early 80s hit, they were able to uh, expand their product line and to become an enormous superpower with personal computers. It's also what we saw with Google, which was a small company in the 1990s. But when the tech bubble broke um, and all those companies went under, there was a plethora of office space, computers, office furniture, uh, electrical engineers, um, uh, you know, software writers, coders, and et cetera. All of that was super abundant in the Bay Area. And so Google was able to take advantage of that, put together some great products, uh, which they gave away for free, and they became a marketing powerhouse uh, that, um, you know, I've got some problems with Google, but by and large, they, they have some very good products uh, that they they provide to their users at zero price. So we can... If, if we do the right things, that's the type of things that we can expect to benefit from. Entirely new products that enrich our lives by an enormous amount, and not just as consumers and game players, but as businesses. 
who need, you know, accounting software, they need uh, Word software, they need PowerPoint software uh, to make their business more efficient and less costly. And that's just what happened. So th that's a huge uh, silver lining uh, for the American economy if we do the right things in, in, in terms of keeping the government out of the recovery business because they do not just a lousy job, but they're counterproductive uh, to the recovery. I think a lot of folks saw that when uh, the uh, stimulus checks went out, uh, and then sometimes there was a separate letter in a separate envelope that went out uh, from the president uh, saying that a stimulus check was going out, and, and you just had to wonder how many hundreds of thousands of dollars did that letter cost um, in, in terms of government inefficiency. Mark Thornton is our guest today. He's an economist and author, and we're uh, crystal balling a little bit. Uh, the future. So, Mark, I grew up in a, a small coal mining town in the Appalachian Mountains, and that's an industry that has been on decline for many years. And and yet, uh, folks in in my home state of West Virginia that are fortunate enough to still be in the mining industry, they hold on to those jobs because they are amongst the few good-paying jobs that are available there. I think about folks like that, or folks who are. For example, in the entertainment industry now, all the, the sound people and the lighting people, the production people, where the, the concert and theatrical business is done primarily for an entire year. You know, it, it's one thing to talk about being able to, to pivot into something new like Zoom did, where they sort of fell backwards into this enormous business increase. But, but how do you intentionally try to change uh, from an industry that may be the only good one available in your region uh, or an industry that, that it's going to take a long time, if ever, to turn and pivot into something new. How do you realistically do that? Well, in terms of the coal industry, they were basically regulated out of business. Um, it was government regulations under the Obama administration in particular uh, that drove that industry under the, well no pun intended but under the ground and um you know coal is a viable energy source it was the bedrock of energy production uh in the united states for decades and decades centuries really and um you know so there's no reason that we had to force them completely out of business and you know we could have done something like give them a better incentive uh, to produce electricity uh, that's cleaner, but the idea of just regu regulating them out of business is insane. Uh, it's a very uh, cheap energy source, uh, and there's got to be better ways of burning coal uh, for the purposes that it's that served for so long. And you know, in, in consequence, that distortion led to the distortion of needing more natural gas. Which led to the whole fracking thing, you know. They they uh, they pushed when they when they pulled down the coal industry. They pushed up the price of natural gas for to uh, fourteen dollars and fifty cents a unit. Now it's below two dollars a unit. So, you know, there was a dis huge distortion which caused huge investment uh, into fracking natural gas and oil, uh, and now that industry uh, is coming unglued as well because of lower uh, oil prices and lower natural gas prices. And so we're creating bankruptcies and bad loans all throughout the, you know, those basins out there in the West 
Um, and you know, look at the look at the types of crazy things that have resulted to show you why a decade of zero interest rates, a totally unnatural, untried, uh, totally crazy monetary policy. They were trying to prop up everything, of course, propping up the banks and corporations and so on and so forth. But look what, what's come in its wake, where we have negative interest rates on loans in European uh, and Asian economies, uh, where we have government bonds with negative yields uh, on, the, on the government bond, so that people give the money to the government and to the banks in large amounts, of course, and a year later, 10 years later, they get back less. So you get no interest. You got a negative interest rate. That's crazy. It's never happened in human history. Interest rates have always been positive. And then even more recently, in the futures market, we had negative oil prices. So that, you know, if you, <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. But the futures market, close to the redemption date, it went $20 negative. Uh, for a barrel of oil, that's another insanity because, you know, so many companies um, in the Midwest and, and West were trying to produce enough oil uh, and bring it to market to try to make some revenue in order to make their bank payments, their loan payments, um, and it ended up causing an unnatural distortion. So we're getting these signals of you know, that the government policy in the, of the Federal Reserve is creating enormous distortions that are causing long waves of destruction uh, to our resources. And it's just much better if the government just left everything alone and if the Federal Reserve uh, just did not try to set interest rates but let the market determine what short-term and long-term interest rates are. Mark Thornton joins us from the Mises Institute. Uh, on the campus of uh, Auburn in uh, Alabama. And I, uh, boy, I'll tell you, uh, Mark, I, I'm not one of those folks, and I don't think you are either, having met you, that that says, you know, the government isn't good at anything. There are certain things that, that the government should be doing for us, but certainly there's an awful lot of waste, and, and there's an awful lot to that old saying of we're <laughs> here from the government to help you, and you, you want to lock the door and turn off the light immediately. Uh, what do you think the government's role should be, the federal government's role should be in trying to right the ship here? Well, uh, the general rule is hands off and uh, keep your hands off and let the market determine prices and interest rates and let entrepreneurs put the resources uh, back together again. Uh, the, the, the good functions of government are carried out mostly by the local governments. So people feel like they're getting a cost benefit benefit um, in terms of, you know, police and fire and the city library and the roads, um, even the schools. Um, I don't think that's really true, but some people do. And so, you know, that's, that's where people feel like they're getting a net benefit uh, from government. Uh, and of course, people support uh, national defense, <laughs> at least they have historically, and um, but a lot of what government does uh, is unseen. It's very, very costly. We have, for example, 17 spy agencies. Uh, we have a multitude of regulatory agencies. We've got 115,000 
financial regulators overseeing markets, uh, but of course they didn't catch Enron. Uh, they didn't catch Bernie Madoff, even though they were working in the same building. Uh, that was those schemes were uncovered by investigative journalists. So, I think a lot of that regulatory system has to go, and it would be a huge benefit um, uh, to workers. Uh, it would be a benefit to the coal industry, um, and it would be a benefit in terms of jobs for sure. It, uh, one of my PhD students did a study, and he found that on average, every regulator cost us uh, about 100 jobs and about $7 million in GDP. So you go figure, you know, if we can cut the regulation and make it easier for entrepreneurs and small business to do their thing without being strangled in red tape, I think that would be that would go a long ways to helping uh, grease the wheels of returning uh, the ship uh, and straightening it out and getting the economy in a recovery mode, a transition mode, um, and, you know, just staying out of the way as much as possible uh, would be what I would suggest, particularly at the federal level. Um, and, uh, you know, let uh, states experiment, let cities uh, run their own things, uh, run their own services, and uh, I think that's that's the route that works. Uh, that's the route. You know, we had an economic crisis after World War One uh, called the, the crisis of uh, 1920 on the heels of the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. So the whole world economy was screwed up beyond belief. And we had 50 million uh, deaths around the world. And President Harding, um, of course, uh, just sat back. He said, balance the budget. He told the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates. Um, and uh, the economy recovered so quickly in less than nine months that the economic depression of 1920 isn't even in the history books anymore. So that's the approach that has a proven track record. Uh, basically, the economy recovered so fast that the bureaucrats and the secretaries of this and the secretaries of that couldn't implement uh, any of their plans before it was too late. So that approach uh, has a ho historical track record that nobody wants uh, people told about. It, it, and as I said, it, it's not in the, it's not even in the American history textbooks uh, by and large. So it's an approach that works. You know, you don't feel safe. You feel like, well, if the government's not going to help me, uh, if the government's not going to bail out my business, what am I going to do? Well, it makes everybody think I've got to do something myself. I've got to, you know, get my company or get my job in a, into a position where we can survive all this thing and do well. And once that happens, then we can return to economic growth. And, you know, people are already uh, changing their behavior uh, right now. They're saving more money. Um, they've returned to the saving be, uh, pattern of the uh, gold span, uh, excuse me, the gold standard era, where Americans saved about 12% uh, of their income, and and just built up that nest egg over time. Uh, prior to the last two economic crises, the personal savings rate in the United States was about two percent, and of course, the debt that everybody had uh, has grown enormously. Uh, I just heard today. 
the president of the university said there's $1.7 trillion of student loans. And the last time I looked, it was more like $800 billion. Uh, And, of course, there's credit card debt, business debt, and, of course, a huge amount of government debt. So we want to get out of debt. Um, We want to increase our savings. Savings is the raw material for economic and technological growth. Um, And it's not funny money. It's real in-the-bank money that bankers turn into homes and bankers turn into businesses and bankers turn into payroll and, and, and those kind of things. Uh, that is so very important. It's the, the the ultimate thing that we want. We want homes, we want businesses, we want factories, uh, and that's the way to get it in a sound and stable way. Before we run out of time, and, and Mark Thornton is our guest today from the Mises Institute in Auburn, um, I, I want to talk a little bit uh, about the future, and, and we've gone back and forth a little on the coal industry. Certainly, regulation uh, hurt the coal industry very badly. There was also, you know, a, a big loss of manpower jobs there because of automation in the coal industry, the continuous miner. I think that that you're seeing a lot more of this in the wake of the pandemic, where lots and lots of businesses are now going to reduce their office space they're using, for example, because guess what? We can all work from home reasonably efficiently. Uh, or maybe not all, but many of us can. Um, there are going to be other things that, that will require less bodies, less human beings, because of automation in the future. So how does that couple with what we've just gone through in the pandemic way out for the future? Will we still go to restaurants? Will those restaurant jobs go away or turn into something else? I, I just saw... Uh, just two days ago, uh, here right outside Washington, D.C., in, in Fairfax City, I saw a robot, literally a robot delivering lunch uh, to someone uh, in the streets of Fairfax, Virginia. So how, how does that automation, how does that technology impact us uh, moving forward from an economist standpoint? Well, you know, the uh, the person who was delivering the food by hand was making less than $10 an hour. The people who make the parts and make the robots and service the robots are making five times that amount of money. And the people, you know, the automated coal, um, uh, the continuous technology. Yeah. Yeah. The continuous miner. Um, you know, that's, uh, we, we do want fewer people digging coal down in those mines. If we can get the same amount or we can get a greater amount and, or we can get it at a lower cost, uh, that's the kind of thing we want uh, to displace workers in relatively dangerous conditions. Right. And uh, But the, the, the te- technology that's replacing those workers, also people have to make the parts, people have to assemble the parts, people have to service that stuff. It, it requires a large amount of service. Um, on that technology, and all of those jobs are making three, five, seven times, uh, well, maybe not for coal miners, but um, say five times uh, the wages uh, of the coal miners, three to five times, uh, you know, if you're, you know, if you're involved in that, in that technology. So uh, jobs are displaced, but jobs are also simultaneously created. And as the price of something like coal goes down, uh, that bolsters all of the businesses, uh, such as steel making, uh, that um, electrical generation uh, makes it all that much cheaper. And you know, cheaper energy is a boost 
uh, to the economy. Coal, oil, natural gas are master ingredients in that they can be applied in so many areas, particularly uh, petroleum. And, uh, and so by making everything, the cost of producing everything uh, much cheaper, it means that the prices in the economy are going to go down uh, and the standard of living are, is going to go up because your cost of, of producing is lower, your cost of goods are lower, and so your wages uh, are stretched over a longer period of time. So ultimately, yes, it means moving people around, uh, and that's what the market economy does is it, it signals uh, through wage rates and prices that we have to move uh, people from point A to point B to point C to point D, um, and that's all a process of economic growth uh, where the standards of living are higher, real wages are higher um, and simultaneously if you are moving, if you stay uh, in areas that are regressing, uh, obviously you're not going to benefit, but those who are on the move, and that's what we want. We want people uh, to adjust. Uh, we don't want chaos out there, but of course we've learned that the 1950s and 1960s were an exceptional era where, you know, you got your high school diploma, then you got your job, and you had that job for the rest of your life until you retired uh, on a company pension. And that was in a very unusual time when the United States after World War II, our capital uh, wasn't destroyed the way Germany's and Japan's and Europe's uh, were. And so we had this you know, fantastic situation where we were the world's manufacturing power. We were the world's manufacturing base. Um, and uh, so that was a special time. In more recent decades, everybody knows that you don't get a, one job in your lifetime, but you have a series of jobs where you're trying to improve your standard of living uh, within the company or jumping from company to company or jumping from industry to industry. Uh, that's the norm, the modern norm, and uh, you know that's just what we've got to rely on. And Mark, as we wrap it up, I wonder if uh, clearly that makes the most logical sense. Are we talking though about uh, at least one or two lost generations for this to all shake out, where you're going to have some really tough times for for an extended period of time while the economy resets itself and people do learn these new trades for the future. I have to say yes. Um, I definitely have to say yes. Uh, you know, we've sent, we've told everybody that college is the way to go, and college may not be the way to go. Uh, we may have made a big mistake in recent years sending so many people uh, to colleges with subsidized student loans and and this uh, banner that you know, college it, it's it's a good deal, but it's increasingly not such a good deal, and people are dismayed. Uh, at the outcome of what they're seeing, uh, before this crisis hit, uh, 41% of all college recent graduates uh, did not have a job. Oh. And one-third of all existing uh, college degree uh, people were underemployed in the sense that they didn't need the college diploma uh, for the job that they were currently in. So, yes, I think it's going to be very difficult I think people are going to be dismayed. The same thing happened in America's Great Depression. It altered people psychologically. Uh, it turned them into intense savers. 
nothing went to waste. Everything was saved uh, for a future use. Uh, I had a great aunt that when she died, I found a, a, a ball of used aluminum foil about the size of a basketball <laughs> and and hard to lift. And she lived through the, the uh, Great Depression, and she was going to be darn sure that if, if another one hit, she was going to have aluminum foil uh, to package up her food. Wow. So, yes, it's going to have... It's going to have some bad effects, um, and the best thing we can do is to allow these people uh, the best opportunity to get a job and to feel worthwhile. It doesn't necessarily uh, have to be a great, great job, uh, but the idea is we have to encourage people uh, to get back to work as soon as possible, and we've discouraged you know, millions and tens of millions of people uh, with the welfare programs. We have 89 different federal welfare programs and you know whole generations have learned to live an unproductive life uh and unfortunately that doesn't end well um at all for people's livelihoods for their health for their self-esteem um all of that goes out the window so uh, i think we have to start thinking right i think we have to start adopting the correct policies um with the whole idea of getting people back to work getting them back to being productive. Um, and that's, that's the route we need to go. That's the target we need to seek uh, as we move forward. Bottom line, we're going to be okay coming out of this thing, Mark? I think so. I mean, not everybody, uh, you know, people have had their lives disrupted. Some people consider their lives destroyed. Um, you know, they may end up losing their house, losing their job. Um, you know, but I think, you know, as I said earlier, I'm a long-term optimist. Right. I think uh, the American people are learning that the federal government is not a, a font of free goods and services. Uh, I think the next generation is, is not going to be interested in paying for all this debt. Um, and I think the Federal Reserve is going to be uncovered as a nearly criminal organization in terms of what they've done and what they're doing right now in monetizing uh, the debt. Um, so I think we're learning. I think that's going to uh, hopefully turn our ideology away from this idea of welfare and government support and you know government experts. Uh, they've all been revealed to be horrible failures. I mean, Fauci and the CDC, you know, they say one thing one day that you need to clean all the surfaces and then the next day they say no don't worry about the surfaces wear a mask social distancing um you know and they're not really talking about um the right things that have uh, showed up as more positive and less negative in other countries with different approaches more open approaches and more knowledge-based approaches uh that have seen other countries deaths from the uh, virus uh, and bankruptcies from the shutdown um, in, in much better outcomes. There you have it. Economist and author Mark Thornton from the Mises Institute down in Auburn in Alabama. Hey, thanks for spending some time with us today. Hope you and your family have a great summer and appreciate your wisdom. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it thoroughly. That's Mark Thornton. And if you need more information on Mark and his books, you can find them at Amazon.com, also at the Mises Institute website. I'm Burke Allen in Washington, D.C. for the Big Time Talker podcast, the service of Speaker Match. Thank you so much for listening. Go out there and make it a great day.